tonight's kind of quite a good night to come along for the first time, really, because we're going to be reminding ourselves of a lot of the things that we've talked about. So what we're going to do is essentially look at this little period. We're going to, so it's called bridging the gap, because we're looking at the 400-year gap that's there between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in doing that, kind of, so this is a period that gets called the silent years, uh, not because not a lot happened. In fact, a lot happened. If you've ever heard of the festival Hanukkah, where they celebrate uh, the revolt, the Jewish revolt, where they uh, rebelled against the Greeks. This is in the, that period. It's a very turbulent time, um, but it's called the silent years because there was no prophets in this time, so there's no scripture. So Malachi ends, then you have 400 years until you have the New Testament. So tonight we're going to look at kind of that last period of the Old Testament as the silent years begin, and then the beginning of the New Testament as it kind of picks up again. So kind of bridging that gap and looking at how the end of the Old and the beginning of the New link together. So, we're going to do that by first looking at the very last promise of the Old Testament. Oh, and as I always say, any questions, just stop me mid-flow. I really don't mind. It's all good. So, the very last prophecy of the Old Testament is quite a long one, and it's given from chapters 3 to 4 of the book of Malachi. So, if we have our Bibles, let's open to Malachi very last book. So if we've got Malachi 3 open, um, this is basically, the the bulk of the prophecy is that there is this coming messenger who is coming to bring a judgment that's going to shake up God's people, shake up uh, Israel. And I've kind of split the prophecy down into three parts. Chapter 3 is very long, and not that I think it's not all interesting or relevant, I've more just split it up for the sake of kind of getting through more of it. So could someone read... Malachi 3, 1 to 5 for us. Great. So, let's just talk as a group. What is the kind of the main focus in this part of the prophecy?
Hey, Andrew. Hey, Nikki. Okay. Hey, guys. For context, we're just in Malachi chapter 3. Uh, yes, so... So, sorry, Henny, say that again. So they're going to come and purify. Yeah. Yeah. Wh- which community is it that's being purified from these verses? Yes, the Levites are mentioned uh, by name. Yeah. So this is specifically the kind of covenant community of God's people. This isn't just kind of all people. This is specifically God's people. So, um, sorry, let me just bring you guys in. So we're, we're let me just go back on the slides. We're, we're looking at the very last promise, prophecy of the Old Testament before it closes. Um, shall I, I'll turn on a speaker now. We've earned it. Okay. So we're looking at the very last prophecy of the Old Testament. Is that on? Yeah, that's on. There we go. Um, the very last prophecy of the Old Testament as it moves into that period of silence before we then go into the New Testament. So we're looking at Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 5 at the moment. So, yes, it's the covenant people. Uh, if you look at verse 5, what stands out about verse 5, considering in the context of God's people... Yes, God's own people are on trial. And this is God's people who are supposed to be the light for the nations. And yet, God is pointing out that there are sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers. So, in other words, I think the, the emphasis in this part of the prophecy is that there's going to be a judgment on the wicked of the community. So those who have been unfaithful to the promise are going to be judged by this coming one. And then, whilst we're not going to read it, the rest of chapter 3 unpacks loads of different ways of being unfaithful to the covenant. Um, so yeah, they're, they're told there is one coming, and those of you among the community who are unfaithful, watch out, basically. Okay, could someone read Malachi 4, verses 1 to 4? Fantastic. Thank you, Andrew. 
So what is the main emphasis in this part of the prophecy? Absolutely. So there's a there's a so this is focusing more on the righteous in the community. So the last one focused had a big focus on the unrighteous, which is here as well. Talks about them being in the furnace and then being burnt up. Um, but yeah, as you say, this is for those of you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will go with healing in its rays, and you'll frolic like well-fed calves. Remember, we've seen lots of times how these prophecies often talk about kind of use kind of new creational language animals being happy and peaceful um, so th I think the emphasis in this part of the prophecy is the vindication of the righteous and bear in mind I mean vindication always comes with judgment on someone so if you're in court and you've been accused of something and you are found innocent you're vindicated well the person who accused you is therefore in the wrong so vindication always has an, a, a kind of an equal and opposite judgment on someone else. So God comes to his people in judgment. He finds the unfaithful there, the sorcerers, the adulterers, so on. And they are told, you are going to be judged and burned up. But those of you who have kept the covenant, you will be like well-fed calves frolicking about. There's a promise of frolicking. Okay, uh, does someone want to do those last two verses? Great, thank you. So what is the main emphasis of this part? Yeah. Yep. Anything else? Yep. Coming prophet. We've, we've seen the messenger mentioned already in chapter four. So here he is again, but it's more specific now. Is it Elijah? Can you think about what he's doing in the context of this? God is told there is a coming judgment. The unfaithful will be destroyed. The righteous will be vindicated. What's the function of this messenger in that promise then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he comes to, to warn to say, this is the judgment that's coming. So repent now. Turn back now before it's too late. So, I mean, just imagine, you don't know this at the time, but this is the very last promise that is ever given by a prophet for 400 years now. Imagine you're 200 years into the silent years and you're thinking, okay, so the last word we heard from the Lord was this. So this, I think, it's interesting that this is kind of where this part ends before the bridge comes, just on this note of there is judgment coming and, yeah, the righteous are going to be okay, um, but the wicked are going to be judged watch out for the messenger in other words and then there's no one and then there's no one and there's no one and there's no one and we move into the the silent years the 400 years of no word of prophecy 
Any questions or comments on those things in Malachi? Okay. Cool. So, as I said at the beginning, uh, also, let's just look at these last three before we move on. So, there's judgment on the wicked, vindication of the righteous, and Elijah messenger calling for repentance. Okay. So, as I said at the beginning, they're not called the silent years because nothing happened. They are very full and very interesting. And when there are no prophets prophesying all the time, interestingly, it gives the people some time to do a bit of theological reflection. They sit down and they start to read the prophets and they start to think, hmm, well, this one said that one, and this one said this, and you put them together. And one of the most interesting things that happens in this period is that they come up with this theological structure by which they think through all the promises of God. And so they, they have this, what we call the, the two-age structure. There's the present age, and then there's the age which is to come. This is the age that the prophets have talked about. And so they, they start to read all the prophets as though they're all talking about the same thing, this age to come. And that thin line in the middle, that is the point where God breaks in. So there's a, a very sharp antithesis between this age and the age to come. The age to come is nothing like this age. And I think this is really important as well to stress. The point here is not that they were thinking that like this age is where kind of life carries on as normal and you, know, you need to eat food and if you don't you die and you have a house and all those kind of things. But then in the age to come, we're all just going to be spirits, and we're going to be in a spirit realm somewhere and doing things. They didn't think that the one was kind of temporal and physical, and one was kind of eternal and non-physical. It was rather that everything we know about the systems of the world is going to change. So it will still be life. God is going to break into history. There will still be history. History will still be moving forward, but at a whole other level. This is, in other words, like... God has come to rule. So, what does mark the present age and the age to come? So, the present age, sin. Big one. Corruption. Death. We, we saw that uh, there's this huge turning point in Genesis 1-3 to where they were alive and they were living with God and in communion with God and then death comes in and it's not just spiritual death, and this needs to be so stressed, because you hear this so often today, oh, they spiritually died. No, it was death, death. That's what it says in the Hebrew. You will die, die. And so the connection between them dying, you move into Genesis 5, and the genealogy just says, and they died, and they died, and they died, because it's like, this isn't natural. But this age is so marked by death. Exile, Israel are not in their promised land. They go to Babylon, and then when they come back, you read Nehemiah, Nehemiah in chapter 9, after they've done all this building work and they're all settled in the land and everyone's back, Nehemiah then says this line, here we are, exiles in our own land. And it's like, oh, so the exile still isn't over. They're still uh, not seeing those promises fulfilled. Um, Israel is subject to the nations. That, that was a curse we saw in the Mosaic law. If you disobey, you will be uh, the tail and not the head. Uh, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. You see this all the time in the Psalms. Lord, why, does, why is the world like this? Why do the wicked do so well and those who want to follow your law, they just suffer? So these are the things that mark this present age. And they're saying these are all the things that the prophets were saying are not good and are not part of God's ultimate plan. But the thing in the age to come, the things of the age to come are 
a new creation. God is rebuilding his world to be as he intended, for it to be a place of glory and life. Resurrection. Again, this is something that the the prophets talk about. God is going to raise his people from the dead. That is the answer to the fact that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. The, The righteous can go into their tombs knowing God has promised he is going to raise me from the dead. We, we looked at that story of um, the mother with her seven sons, who the, the Greek king, um, not Artaxerxes, what's his face? Something else, I'll remember later. Um, he was torturing them and telling them, eat pork, eat pork, disobey the law. And they were saying, nope, God is our king, we're going to submit to him. You can kill our bodies if you like, God's going to raise us up. So th- there's a real sense, a r- real hope in the resurrection, that's part of the age to come that Israel will be restored, that they will be back where God wants them to be. They will be as God intended. They will no longer be subjects. And this is a big one that we, we kept seeing. It just comes up again and again. The fact that all nations are going to flow into God's people. Remember, we saw that promise in Isaiah 2. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be the highest of all mountains, and all the nations will flow to it and say, let us walk in the ways of the Lord. So as Israel are restored, as they are raised up, they will draw all people to themselves. The Messiah is going to come. A lot of Jews in this time period will say uh, the age to come arrives when the Messiah does. The forgiveness of sins. Again, this is a big one. Daniel 9 says this. Lord, how long is it going to be before we are restored, before Atonement is made for sins before righteousness comes in. And the kingdom of God. God is going to come and reign. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit will be poured out. Now, what we saw last time was that when we talk about the Holy Spirit being poured out, we are talking about God's means by which he is going to transform this world. That The means by which God is going to take everything wrong, just like the Spirit hovered over the waters in creation, so the, the Spirit is hovering over this world, preparing for new creation. So, when we talk about the present age and the age to come, this is the kind of antithesis that we're drawing. This age has this stuff, this age has that stuff. So if we go back and look at uh, this one, you kind of see, okay, yeah, I see why they're on a different plane. That Yes, they're in the same world, they're in this world, They're all part of God's plan. It's the same people, so God is restoring his people. But you think of a world where all righteousness is rewarded properly, where all wickedness is dealt with, where life triumphs over death. It's like I can imagine those things, but it's such a different world. So we are talking about this world, but this world that's so transformed that we sometimes talk about that world. That happens in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me just skip through these again. So, I mean, I think what, what hopefully we can see there is that those things are all things which are promised by prophets in different times in different places. So there's no kind of 
You don't open to one chapter in Isaiah and, and he says, Behold, there is going to be a new creation and people will be raised and Israel will be restored, blah, blah, blah. They never just laid out like this. Rather, like Ezekiel gives two chapters talking about the resurrection and the restoration of Israel. Um, Joel gives a couple of chapters talking about the Holy Spirit. Daniel talks a lot about the kingdom of God. So what's going on in the silent years are people are reading all these prophets and going, hang on a second, I think they're all talking about the same thing. There's this age, and then there's the age of these promises. I mean, even just looking at some of these, so like resurrection and new creation obviously go hand in hand. The reason why people are raised from the dead is because God is restoring this world. If he's restoring this world, it also means restoring his people back from the dead. Which is, again, tied up with the restoration of Israel. We, we talked about how every single promise in the Old Testament about the resurrection of the dead comes in the context of God talking about the restoration of his people. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who does all these things, who restores his people, who brings new creation, who brings life from the dead. So, I mean, restoration of Israel and resurrection, if you like, are like subcategories of new creation. This is all making sense? Stop me if you want me to go down anything. All good? Okay. Uh, likewise, I mean, think about the kingdom of God and the coming of the Messiah. They're obviously completely intertwined as well. But Daniel, he does talk about Messiah, but he never talks about the Messiah in his prophecies about the coming kingdom of God. He talks about the Messiah in chapter 7. He talks about the kingdom in chapter 2 and chapter 9. But he never puts two and two together. Other places it's a bit clearer, Isaiah 11, for instance. But the point is that this Messiah is coming to bring God's rule to his people. And we know that God is bringing his rule to earth. So they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And, and equally, the end of exile. Why did they go into exile? That's not rhetorical, by the way. You can answer that. Because they, yeah, they sinned against God. They broke covenant. He said, don't do these things or you'll go into exile. And they said, we're going to do these things. Why are we in exile? So end of exile and forgiveness of sins are also very much intertwined. So this isn't just kind of like a random list of just like things that would be nice to see. These are all very much tied in with Remember we used this phrase a few times, that the, the teleology, God's teleology, his purpose, his end goal of things. When God looks to the, the fulfillment of his promises in history, it involves all these things. So this marks the age to come as distinct from this uh, age. Oh, one other thing, if, uh, remember a few, I mean it was a few months ago, so I don't blame you if you don't. When we looked at the promises of the restoration of Israel... There's two authors in these silent years called Josephus and uh, Philo, who I, I quoted a few of their things where they were saying, because they're in a context where Israel is scattered amongst all the nations, and Philo himself is in Alexandria in northern Africa, and Josephus is in Rome, and they're reading these promises in the prophets, and they say, yes, it, it was a judgment from God, that means that we're here, not in our land, but if you read the prophets, we think, I'm speaking in character as them, God has scattered us so that when he brings the age to come, the world is ready for an Israelization, if you like. He has, he has scattered them like seed among all the other nations. So the word that they use for their scattering is the Greek farming word for scattering seed. 
they are, they're chucked out into the nation so that when God brings the water, up comes the growth. So they're all related. And that's the kind of exciting thing that we have to look forward to in the age to come. So that's kind of the bridge. This is really funny, actually. I almost always say when we begin deep dive, it's going to be a short one tonight, and then it never is. It's always like an hour and 15. Uh, But it actually does look like it is going to be a short one tonight, so we can slow down if anyone wants to. Let's let's go on to the other side of the bridge, because I think this is really exciting, and I hope you will too, or maybe I'm just a nerd. Um, So whenever you read the first few chapters of a book, you always have the author drawing out a few key things so that you know why they think it's important to talk about what they're talking about. You know, you don't want to get halfway through before you write, oh, this is why you're writing this. You know, you want to know, okay, why, why should I read this? And the gospel writers are no different. They, so the beginning chapters of the gospels introduce what the authors believe the information they're presenting means in its bigger context. So why am I telling you about the life of Jesus when I could have told you about the life of this guy, Tim, who lives in Northern Galilee? Well, because let me explain what the life of Jesus means in its bigger context. In the context of, hang on a second, we're coming to the end of this bridge. The silent years are ending. So, let's look at a few references from the beginning of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, could we open to Mark 1, verses 1 to 8? If you get there, just read it for us. stands out to you. Anything from what we've looked at so far? Yeah. This is a this is a really good point actually to um illustrate what I was saying earlier. He says as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, but then who does he quote? Malachi. That's the verse we read earlier in chapter three. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. You think, well, you said Isaiah, but that's Malachi. The next verse is Isaiah, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. You might think, well, what the heck's going on here? And this is one of those uh, stories I like like telling, really. 
for years, this was used as, as one of those passages that critical um, or people critical of Christianity would use to just point out how idiotic the writers of the Gospels were. Like, oh, Mark can't even get his citations right. He says it's Isaiah and then quotes Malachi. And for people who hold a high view of Scripture that we say, no, actually, this is the Word of God. This is inerrant. It doesn't have errors in it. They'd say, yeah, it does. It has a pretty obvious error in it. It says Isaiah, it's Malachi. But then a few years ago, and, and if you believe that, then you don't need to dig any deeper. We know what it is. It's an error, so we call it an error. But a few years ago, there was a scholar called Ricky Watts, who was an Aussie guy, who did his uh, PhD on this beginning of Mark. And he did some digging around, did some looking, and what he found is, remember I was saying earlier that in the silent years, one of the things you get Jewish theologians doing is they start to read the prophets through the lens of each other because they believe that they have one consistent message. And what he found is that there's this consistent thing where if there's a theological work that's looking at, say, the promises in Isaiah or the promises in Jeremiah, they will go through all the other prophets through the lens of that book and quote all the quotes as though they came from that person. So Isaiah's prophecies come up a lot in Mark. So in other words, what Mark is doing is he's saying, Isaiah has this big promise all the way through that God is going to bring about a new exodus. And so Mark is coming to Malachi, reading it through the lens of Isaiah. So Mark isn't stupid enough to think, oh yeah, I guess it was Malachi. He knows it's Malachi, but he's reading Malachi through the lens of Isaiah, which if you believe that the Bible is God's word and it has one consistent message, is perfectly applicable, and there's no uh, issue there. So essentially what we have here is um, yeah, the, the promise from I, of Malachi being used to understand some of the prophecies in Isaiah. A bit of a detour, but uh, yes, anyway. Thank you, uh, Anita. Yeah, he does. Do you want to carry on drawing that out a bit? Or are you, had you drawn it out enough? Okay, fair enough. Yep, so there's a messenger coming. Anything else? Yes, uh, both of those. There's a call for repentance and tells us the messenger is John the Baptist. Hold on to that one. We're going to come back to that one in a minute. So the messenger that's been sent, that's from chapter 3 of Malachi. The preaching repentance, that comes from chapter 4 of Malachi. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the... Yeah. So we're seeing these kind of age to come promises, forgiveness of sins, along with that Malachi one, what, what, what rounds off the Old Testament, right, now the messenger's coming. Okay, anything else? Yeah, absolutely. This holy one is coming with the Holy Spirit. Again, that's one of the promises of the age to come, that the Spirit is going to be poured out. So we have this holy coming king who is bringing the Holy Spirit, who's bringing repentance, uh, who's bringing forgiveness of sins. There's this messenger here who is preaching repentance. So Mark just kind of dives straight in. You, you, bear in mind, obviously, we only looked at it for five minutes. But if you're a Jew living in this time period, you know 
present age, the age to come, present age, age to come. I read Daniel, I read about the age to come. I read Ezekiel, I read about the age to come. You know, all those things. And so here you dive into Mark, and it's just like bam, 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 just at you. So we've got John the Baptist fulfilling the Malachi prophecy of the messenger preaching repentance, have the forgiveness of sins being proclaimed, and he points to the one who brings the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is good. Let's next do Matthew 1. Verse 1 to 17. Now, I'm not going to make anyone read this one all out loud. and You'll see why when we get there. Unless anyone really likes names. Henny, would you read verse 4 for us? Just for a bit of fun. Thank you, brother. That really spoke to my heart. Um, there's a lot of begotten. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to draw out a few things from this rather than us reading the whole thing. Um, you can have the first one free. What does it tell us? It tells us a lot of names. Um, the very first thing to read. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Oh, okay. That's what this story is about. The Messiah's come. The son of David, the son of Abraham. That's interesting. David, the great king, and Abraham, you know, the one who literally started all these, uh, these promises, uh, this story. Uh, the next kind of gap in names, we have, uh, so we go from Abraham down to David, the first kind of phase of Israel's history, father of Solomon. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Um, and then you go down from David to the exile in Babylon. So in verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, um, oh, sorry, Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Then the last phase goes from the exile of Babylon down to Jesus. Notice, um, what am I saying to notice? I don't know what I'm saying to notice. Doesn't matter. The point is that the whole thing, the story, the very beginning is being rooted in the story of Israel, in the promises to Abraham, in the going off into exile, into the returning from exile, and now it's like, and here we come to Jesus. It's like the story is coming to a head in this person. So what does Matthew one seventeen tell us? It tells us Jesus is the heir to the throne of David. He is the, the coming king that we've been waiting for. Notice that uh, when it goes after David, it follows through the line of the heirs. So David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, it, it follows who inherits the throne. Luke's genealogy follows exact family line. Matthew's genealogy follows um, heir to the throne. And so you end up at Jesus. So again, this coming Messiah, this one we've been waiting for. The story of Abraham to exile is coming to a head in Jesus. And the obvious one there, he is the promised Messiah. You kind of get the point that Matthew didn't want any of his readers to miss it. Just, just in case you don't know the story, let me just quickly tell you. Okay, let's just jump into the next chapter. Could someone read chapter 2, verse 1 to 6 for us?
Wonderful. Thank you. So, what do we see in this passage? Yeah. Gentiles coming to find the King of Israel. This is, this is definitely sneaking into uh, the Christmas deep dive next month. But um, one of the things about Magi is... We, because literally we've only ever heard of Magi, if you've been to a Christmas nativity service when you're a kid, you know, um, we just have no idea what they did. But if you read some of the ancient history, what it's like, if you read Herodotus, uh, the Magi were the people in Persia who basically, whenever there's a new king about to come around, they're always sniffing somewhere around the scene. So, I mean, as you read through Herodotus, you just come to think that they are the most kind of sniveling, power-hungry group of people. Because as soon as they, oh, well, you might be a new ruler. We quite like you. But you get the sense here that basically they detect, they know that something big's here. The reason why Matthew is telling us, oh, and Magi came, is because it's like, that says something about who this king is. Remember, what, I mean, I'm not saying this to you guys, but like, it's like Matthew saying to his audience, remember the stories of how Darius became the king of Persia, how it didn't look like he was going to be king, how everyone was against him. But then the Magi started getting involved and then became the king and conquered everyone. It's almost like Matthew saying, hmm. So the point is you've got these Gentiles coming to find the king. You've got Gentiles flowing in. Thank you, that's great. Anything else in this passage? <coughs> Next one. Mm. Yep. Micah 5.2, yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, what is, I mean, this is, it's kind of so obvious in the passage that you might think, well, yeah, that was so obvious, but what does that then imply if, if there's a promise here, there's a, someone coming, talking about a Messiah, what does this passage tell us about Jesus? He's the Messiah, yeah. He was born in Bethlehem, you know, if it quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's probably a duck. If there's Magi around, and if he's born in Bethlehem, and if angels are saying it's the Messiah, it must be the Messiah. So, very basically, Jesus is the promised Messiah. Okay, let's go into Luke. And now, I had to be very uh, discriminatory with choosing passages from Luke, because Luke 1 to 2 is almost like Luke sat down with his prophets open and went, right, how can I squeeze literally as many things as possible into these two chapters. So I, I've only chosen three passages from these first two uh, chapters of Luke. But if, you just, if, if after tonight you go away and read the first two chapters of Luke, you will just find reference after reference to the promises of the age to come. But let's start in Luke chapter 1, 11 to 17. If you get there, just read it. Sorry, 11 to 17.
And the next one. Wonderful. Thank you. So, what does that smack of? Malachi. Yeah. Yeah. Mark kind of goes, ah, oh, they'll get this is from Malachi. And Luke goes, just in case they've never read Malachi. I'll just. Yeah. Absolutely. So John the Baptist is this promised Elijah. Malachi told us that before the Lord comes, a messenger is coming who's coming who is coming as Elijah, the Elijah like messenger who's going to bring this repentance. His job is to turn the unfaithful of Israel back to their God. Okay. I mean that that's fairly straightforward, I think, but it's it's also pretty huge when especially considering in Malachi, and we'll come this will come out later in later sessions, but in Malachi it's there is this day of judgment coming. And just before it happens, Elijah is coming. And so, John the Baptist coming isn't like uh, waiting there for some far off few thousand years. It's like, no, 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 this is the Malachi prophecy. Something big is about to happen. Right, let's just jump down a few verses down into chapter 30 to 33. This is um, Mary now talking to the angel. Thank you. So. Yeah. Yes, the kingdom of God is coming through Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. He's the, he is bringing the kingdom of God and he's going to rule over Israel. Good. Um, I would have loved to spend some time in Mary's song and Zechariah's song because they are just like incredible. But I decided that we should probably jump into chapter two instead and look at what Simeon says. Um, but as I say, if you read the first two chapters, you'll just see this coming out again and again and again. But so could someone read chapter two? Verse 25 to 35. <coughs> I will bring you a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, that is, God with us. 
to me. Very good. Thank you. So, what comes out in this passage? Amen. I mean, how cool would it be to be Simeon? To be one of those people that just waited and waited and waited, and then one day you're just doing, you know, normal day, you brush your teeth, you get to the temple, and then you just feel the Holy Spirit say, just go and wait in the lobby, and you're like, Okay, um, what would you do when you held that baby, you know? Awesome. God keeps his promises. Okay, what, what else do we draw from this? Yes. Yes, he is the light for the nations. Yes. And the glory of your people, Israel. Yeah, it's big. What about that? What about that first prophecy we saw in Malachi? Remember, Malachi talked about the judgment of the wicked, the vindication of the righteous. We look at what he says to Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Where the MIV puts it, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Well, I think the falling is talking about the uh, the judgment, and the rising is talking about that kind of vindication. Yeah. In him, the 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 true members of God's covenant are going to be revealed, and those who are in the covenant, nonetheless but unfaithful to it, are going to be exposed. Yeah. Okay, so unrighteous will be cut off through Jesus. The Gentiles will be brought in through him. Um, 
Yeah, and I do think there is a subtle promise of resurrection in there as well. So, I mean, th- th- just, this is just a brief selection. We've only done six passages, uh, but there's so many we could have done. But if you just look at this list that we talked about earlier from the age to come, I mean, not everything is covered here because I'm not trying to cram them in, but the kingdom of God is talked about, the Holy Spirit is talked about, the forgiveness of sins is talked about, the coming of the Messiah, the nations flowing in, the restoration of Israel. Really, the only two which are kind of uh, not immediately clear are the new creation and the resurrection. But as I say, I think the resurrection is subtle there, and I think that new creation is included in that Mark 1 when he says, when he promises, uh, quotes the promise from Isaiah about prepare a path in the wilderness. You read that passage in Isaiah, it says, behold, I will bring springs in the desert. There will be a highway through the land. It's all new creational. And Mark says, this sums up what's going on with Jesus. So, when you look at the first chapters of the Gospels, they are making a point. In Jesus... The age to come is coming to be a reality. It is arriving in Jesus. Now, we have the the challenge of being 2,000 years in the future and saying, um, has it all happened? You know, if we go back to that kind of... Actually, I think I have it. Do I have it? No, I don't. We go back to that uh, diagram I had earlier, that kind of sharp divide between the two ages you know we might put Jesus coming in as that God breaking in but then would we just say oh well you know we're in the age to come now I think we'd be pretty unsatisfied to say oh yeah like this is it isn't you know this is this is the fullness of God's promises that that would be pretty lame and it didn't take 2,000 years for people to work that out and we're not going to talk about this tonight but one of the things that we're going to talk about when we go later is as you go through the New Testament, they start to realize that their model needs to be altered. And, uh, well, actually, I will give you a little spoiler for tonight. Um, but the, the thing with that kind of overlap model is that they're saying, okay, age to come, uh, sorry, present age, age to come. But one of the big things that marks the age to come is the day of resurrection. And we've talked about this before. The, the Gospels talk a lot about the resurrection. They don't talk a lot about going to heaven. It's mentioned four or five times in the whole New Testament. They do talk a lot about the day of resurrection when people who have been in heaven are reunited with their bodies. And so they're saying, this is the age to come. But then Jesus goes and does this thing, throws a spanner in the whole system. He goes and gets resurrected. And it's like, okay, what do we do with that? And so what you see in the works of Paul particularly is he goes, yeah, this is good, present age, age to come, but what we kind of need to do is this. And see, ah, Jesus has kind of brought this overlap period where the age to come has broken into the present age and the present age is actually fading away. And so it's not like we don't just say, oh, yeah, we're in the age to come, but we also don't just say, oh, we're in the, we're in the present age. There is a sense in which we're in both. So in, in Hebrews 6, the reason why it says someone who called themselves a Christian and then goes from the church, departs from it, the reason why it says their judgment is so severe, it says they have tasted the powers of the age to come and yet have trampled it underfoot. Now, I'm definitely going into territory which belongs to a whole other session, but it's just to say that generally Paul affirms, and, and Jesus and the gospel writers affirms that 
present age, age to come model, but sees that as Jesus arrives, we have to change it. There's this big revelation that comes in. And so we're going to explore that another time. Um, but I hope that kind of whets your appetite for it a little bit. Let's do a quick recap. So those kind of th- three elements, end of this side, the bridge, then the other side. So the end of this side, Malachi rounds off the Old Testament by saying something big is about to happen. And we know that that big thing is about to happen when God sends an Elijah-like messenger to market. So when the Elijah-like messenger comes, that's when you've got to have your wits about you. That is the promise that God closes off Revelation for 400 years with. The two-age model, the present age and the age to come, expresses a rounded and coherent summary of the eschatological promises, that the promises about God's purposes for history found in the Old Testament. There's, as I say, there's no part in the Old Testament when Isaiah says, by the way, there are two ages. In, instead, it arises from the, the scriptures. It kind of arises inductively from studying them. And then lastly, the New Testament begins by establishing in Jesus all these promises are coming to a head. The age to come is at hand, is the word that the gospel writers use a lot. So, I hope that is uh, satisfactory for tonight. So we are now officially in the New Testament. We, uh, we can now just use the Old Testament as a reference work. Um, but I think things, things start to wrap up very quickly from here, really, because the Old Testament sets all the groundwork. And it's like if you, if you read a book series, and like the conclusion, the, the, the chapter that rounds it all off is comparatively very small. It doesn't have to. It just has to tie all the threads together. So I uh, hope that's good. Let me just pray, and then we can go our separate ways. Short one tonight, but that's all right. Okay. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that you have plans and promises for this world. It's so easy to see all the damage, all the hurt, all the pain, and become so discouraged by it. But when we look to you, Lord, we are reminded that in you, the age to come is dawning. That the things that mark this age, the hurt, the pain, the corruption, sin and death, that they are coming to their end. That their eviction notice has been handed over to them. So Lord, we just pray that you would encourage us and build us up in that hope, we pray. Amen. Cool. Thanks, guys.